0: to Social Workers Break Room. This is Imelda. And I'm Jennifer. And today we bring you Prevention Programs, creating long-lasting impact in communities. Speedbox about prevention. <laughs> prevention. <laughs> prevention.
1: <laughs> prevention. Prevention. P-R-E-V-E-N-T-I-O-N. Prevention, dude.
0: Stay with us. <laughs> All right. So I came across an interesting Instagram post recently that caught my attention and seemed to be very popular among their followers. It was not on our page, but it was on a different page. But it caught my attention because this post was about suicide prevention and a list of activities and resources that we don't often associate suicide prevention with. These are so critical in order to address the issue from the source. So we wanted to spend some time exploring more about the prevention approach to social change. So, Jennifer, when I mention suicide awareness efforts, what is the first thing that comes to your mind? Uh, 1-800-273-8255, which right. was been
1: popularized by Logic featuring Alessia Cara and DJ Khalid. Um, what? But the suicide hotline. I didn't know this, that they were ambassadors for
0: that. But, but yes. Oh,
1: they got a ton of calls after that song came out. They really? were severely understaffed. But please, uh, use the line
0: if you need it. Well, yeah. So the point is that when we hear suicide awareness, is usually a hotline or, say, reach out to someone that you care, all those great things, right? And most of the time— um, We think of a mental health crisis number as a hotline, trainings to de-escalate situations, et cetera. And even though all these resources are very important and useful, we know that suicide is a symptom of an underlying cause and factors combined that leads to someone, you know, getting to that point. Unfortunately, when we mention things like housing and financial stability, we don't often associate those with suicide and mental health prevention because we've been, used to, or even trained as professionals to respond to issues from a reactive standpoint instead of a preventive measures. Preach. Right? And in reality, in order to effectively reduce suicide rates uh, long-term, we need to address the variables that often contribute to the escalation of the symptoms that ta- you know, leads to, to that person taking that, making that decision. For example... Let's think of an individual who has faced trauma during their childhood, and then they had multiple barriers to access quality education, and then the school they attended was severely underfunded, so they could not provide additional services they needed, therefore they didn't graduate high school because they ended up frustrated and dropping out, which now as an adult, it makes it harder for them to find a stable job. Uh, And the one they found pays below minimum wage, which leads them to them not being able to, Uh, afford safe housing for their family. Um, And it just, you know, one thing after the other. And then they end up turning into, you know, for substances to soothe and cope. Um, And this cycle continues year after year after year until one day this person um, gets to that breaking point and decides to take their own life or attempt against their own life. So knowing the context of the story behind this person's, um, you know, life, When I tell you, Jennifer, what will suicide prevention for them look like?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think of a lot of things, like we think all the way back to that childhood trauma. We think back to what treatment and prevention could have looked like them, or if they went to a well-funded school, or if they had a way through or around the school-to-prison pipeline, if they had had, you know, different caring adults in their life, or even adult accomplices, you know, who were able to lead them through some of those difficult things. If they had access to, you know, mental health treatment Throughout this cycle, if they had access to vocational programs, Mm -hmm. job education, if they had access to funding, if they had access to stable housing, if they had universal basic income, if they had, you know, many, many things that could have happened in this person's life that might have changed the trajectory at any point, Mm -hmm. but all forks in the road, you know, without proper prevention led to, you know, this person having this compound trauma and this complex situation that, you know, we often come up with as social workers when we're trying to untangle this yarn ball that if everyone had just taken a string from the beginning,
0: oh, I like that. it would have never gotten so tangled. I like that metaphor. Yeah. So how different will our profession be if we will focus more on prevention instead of reaction? Um, and I know these are very broad and big topics. And, and in order to be effective at addressing any social issue, multiple variables need to be activated, such as funding, policies, advocacy, education, et cetera, like Jennifer mentioned. But- We want to focus on this episode mainly on creating awareness and, you know, having us as social workers thinking of these issues from a different perspective and and highlighting the importance of cross-collaboration between clinical work and macro work. So in our profession, we often box ourselves into either clinical or macro social work. And, and something sometimes we even think that these are mutually exclusive, that oh I'm you know, I, I do clinical work and I don't get involved in advocacy, or vice versa. And so we tend to think like, oh, I'm just gonna stay in my lane and do what, you know, what I'm good at. But what if I tell you today that in order to be an effective social worker, we should be doing a little bit of both. <gasps> Right. Shocking. So for, for purposes of this conversation, we will we'll move away a little bit from suicide um, and use the example of domestic violence, which is a field that I'm more familiar with. And I have worked with um, individuals affected by this in different settings in, in our local community. Um, I have worked at two different domestic violence shelters, both with very different models of care, but similar Needs of the clients, um, and at the end of the day, the circumstances that led these families to be at the shelter are similar. So when we think of domestic violence, even um, we even have a full month here in Arizona of domestic violence awareness month, which I think it's purple, I believe, mm-hmm. and even there's a big push on 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 local media to create awareness. Some buildings, like city buildings, turn purple, um, and even though that's great support and awareness, I often think like, is that, really being effective of, you know, addressing these issues. So again, Jennifer, so what are some of the things that come to your mind when you think of Domestic Violence Awareness Month? All the purple light bulbs
1: the state must need. No, um, but things like, you know, hotlines, a lot of times we they do some media pushes around like warning signs to be aware of, um, emergency shelters, what police involvement looks like. You know, I start going down the path of, you know, again, what does that reaction look like and how do we reduce harm from that? reaction so what does what are the implications with CPS down the line for this person family court Um, and again a lot of times we do get to see those like media awareness we have most states have a coalition to end sexual domestic violence that will have great things on their website that get posted around this time like safety plans how to detect the signs like how to support someone through leaving it's going to take them seven times to leave here's what Mm -hmm. you should be doing to show you love and support them all seven times and then again Emergency hotlines again, kind of
0: that reaction when it's gotten to this point. Right. Call this number, and we know, as just working in the community, we know that those hotlines sometimes are not that effective because services are very limited. So, some sometimes people get uh, they're placed on a waiting list mm-hmm, for, for a shelter, especially for shelters. So. Yeah, so what you just described are all the ways our communities react to this issue after it happens. Um, we focus on helping the victim and prosecuting the perpetrator Sometimes, you know, it doesn't happen very often, but the more long lasting work happens when we focus on prevention, you know, working effectively on um, creating programs and supporting the community to prevent this from getting to that point. For example, prevention on domestic violence can look like scholarships for first generation students, women owned businesses development helping women be more financially stable and independent, helping them create their um, either their own job or um, some type of skills trainings uh, that can help them um, get an employment, um, affordable health care, sex education at our schools, helping women um, be in control of their bodies, mm-hmm. Um, and you know, in their health, um, affordable housing, uh, women's financial literacy, and systemic dismantlement of misogyny, and accessible childcare. Uh, so there's so many things that we could be doing to prevent this escalation of of domestic violence to get to the point where someone needs to leave their house and you know flee with their children to seek shelter. So as we can see the majority of re- of reaction type of services are focused on micro or clinical work and the prevention efforts are usually focused on the macro community side of social work and I also want to point out how this contributes to burnout in social workers because um, I often see posts on Facebook and other groups of you know social workers and mental health providers. Um, how are they venting out about you know wanting to quit the profession because they're so tired and burned out, um, and they feel bad because they enjoy what they do, but they feel so conflicted because you know they have high caseloads um, and they don't know what to do. Well, newsflash is healthy to transition back and forth between clinical and community practice. And it's highly recommended. Um, And it's something that I have personally done. Um, I enjoy working in clinical settings, working direct practice. But after maybe a year or two years, um, I get burned out. It's, It's challenging. And so that's when I decide to go to more uh, community building and advocacy, fundraising, etc. And then eventually, once I refill my cup and I know that I'm doing, I feel like I have a sense of um, that I'm doing long lasting change, I go back and provide direct care services as well. So um, we often think that we have to stay in, in one box or, or the other. Um, and it's actually the social work profession is actually very fluid between those two.
1: Yeah. And really, I mean, most of you should be at least familiar with the NASW code of ethics, but it states very clearly that we need to engage in both types of social work. And it doesn't mean that, you know, if you are feeling burnt out and at the end of your rope, that you need to do 60,000 other things. You know, there's um, a concept that the woman who wrote Trauma and Recovery talks about that, you know, there's survivor's guilt. But a lot of times as social workers, we also get bystander guilt of like, oh, I can't enjoy things because people are suffering. And if I don't do everything to fix everybody's suffering all the time, then I must be a terrible person. That's bystander guilt. It's like white guilt. Mm-hmm. It's not productive for anybody. We need to keep a foot in both worlds, but you have to stay grounded to yourself in both of them. So it's okay to either move back and forth like Imelda said, or even if you're just having those conversations about what does this look like upstream? Whether you're upstream, maybe you're in community practice, you're trying to build those programs, or you're kind of downstream in micro practice, where are the places where your clients fell through the gaps? What program would have prevented them from coming to you all the way downstream in crisis? Where do we need to put those programs, people, systems, et cetera, in place? No one's going to know that better than the people who manage it every day. But a lot of times we are complaining on Facebook instead of going, hey, Melda, I know you run a program. I know you run an organization. Is there an open feedback period? Mm -hmm. Is there, can I send you an email? You know, hey, I just saw you got millions of dollars from SAMHSA. Would you consider a program that targeted this? Because this all the way down, you know, five years later, this is what we're seeing when we don't do X, Y, or Z upstream. So really leveraging your experience and communicating that because it's absolutely invaluable.
0: Exactly and it's, it's I feel like it's important um, as social workers and mental health providers to make peace with the the fact that we benefit from the struggle of individuals and we receive a paycheck because of the experiences that they, that brought them into services. And I think as social workers, you know, one thing I joke about
1: often is I would love to put myself out of business. Yes. And I think that's really what, if you center yourself in that, that you work every day so that nobody ever needs a social worker Mm -hmm. you know there's a lot of conversation about you know there's no ethical consumption under capitalism and sometimes it can feel like there's no ethical labor under capitalism there are systems that we participate in that are without our consent and we have to survive for long enough to abolish them so we don't need them anymore so it's it's okay we have to make peace with that again Mm -hmm. because your clients need you to show up and you're going to have clients for the foreseeable future. And they need you in the field for the long term. But again, using that invaluable experience you have from being in the mud, being in the weeds with folks, to make sure that less folks are in the mud or in the weeds in the mm-hmm. future.
0: Yeah. And it's our duty to continue advocating for programs, funding, policies that are focused on preventing the circumstances that bring clients into services with us. Um, our ultimate goal, like Jennifer said, is for social workers to not be needed anymore. Uh, and we often play part of that system that you just puts a Band-Aid on it. Um, uh, a hotline will definitely help A victim, but it will do nothing to prevent the perpetrator from doing the same thing over and over and again to the next victim. So, so where do we start? You know, Um, and I know some some of these conversations can feel a little heavy and daunting. And how do we dismantle these big systems um, and and break that cycle? But doing our part on advocating for prevention programs from Early childhood programs all the way to support for for youth to uh, youth programs and so many other services that are part of um, just basic needs uh, mm-hmm. that, that the individuals need, like housing and healthcare. care. Um, it's a good place to start. So I know this topic, it's very broad and complex, like I mentioned. And uh, I know we have a, uh, quite a few listeners who are students and who are getting ready to go out there in the field and get involved in community efforts. So this is your friendly reminder that being aware of how, how micro and macro work works hand in hand will only enhance your knowledge and practice as a as a culturally grounded social worker and just continuing enhancing your your how effective your approach is to to the work that you do anything else that you want to add jennifer do good you are good do good yes we need you thank you and we'll see you next time bye